Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. Um, It is my favourite geek topic this evening that what I'm recording um, because if any of you know me you'll know that I'm a giant reptile and amphibian nerd um, amphibians in particular have always been an interest of mine so I'm really excited to be talking to Harvey Tweets who is co-founder and director of an organization called Celtic Reptile and Amphibian and they specialize in housing breeding and conservation of European reptiles and amphibians, including some of our native UK species. So Harvey, thanks for coming on and talking to me. I've been following you on uh, YouTube for a while and I'm loving your videos on there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So Harvey, tell us a little bit about, um, I suppose, where Celtic Reptile and Amphibian came from, the idea and who's involved in it. So when we think about conservation of reptiles and amphibians, we often, um, our imagination often flings us to somewhere you know equatorial the tropics and and deforestation in the rainforests you know examples such as the lima leaf frog and the golden toad come to mind Um, and we don't often think about the species which are on our doorstep um, especially within europe and and temperate species Um, and celtic reptile and amphibian was formed on the basis that Within 50 years, potentially 50% of Europe's amphibian species could go extinct. And it's this reality that so many of these species which we overlook, which are on the local heaths or in the local woods or in your local pond, are actually becoming more and more threatened. Um, And the way it came about really was that I've worked... um, for quite quite a while and followed various different rewilding efforts all across the UK. Um, And it was when I was working with some great individuals on the River Otter Beaver Trial in Devon um, that the full potential of of what Celtic is trying to do was revealed. What the habitats that the beavers had created were absolutely perfect for amphibian and reptile species. Yet unfortunately, these species were, were, were no longer there. And so basically the only answer to, to bringing these species back is, is captive breeding and uh, education and also um, wide scale restoration like is what is happening, the revolution which is going on in the countryside all across Britain now, um, known as rewilding. And that is what Celtic truly um, tries to implement and strive for and so like reintroduction of um kind of our threatened native um reptiles and amphibians that exactly. are bred in captivity yeah. in high exactly. numbers is yeah, yeah. part of yeah. that yeah yeah and it's not and, and the one of the things that we we take as a, as a holistic approach to nature conservation this idea that maybe you can restore a species to you know just a few ponds and, and that ticks the box the species is is in that area now but functionally, it's still extinct. And so if we're really talking about landscape scale restoration uh, and the rewilding initiatives that many people want and we're now starting to see, we've got to be thinking about restoring these animals literally en masse. Yeah, 
yeah and joining up the areas where they live right exactly exactly yeah mm-hmm. habitat connectivity uh, and corridors are you know fundamental to fighting the battle against biodiversity loss yeah and i know we've talked before and you mentioned you know that kind of reptiles and amphibians almost get forgotten about when we talk about our native wildlife um because they're sort of small and slimy or scaly and um some people don't don't really like them but they're kind of like the the forgotten parts of the kind of lower elements of the food chain and things sometimes aren't they exactly yeah i mean the amount of times that you know we'll say we'll be at a talk or an event and we'll say so britain has three species of snakes and and everyone looks so surprised um, and, it, and, it, and it's the, that sort of um, it's that sort of not knowing that we need to try and you know overcome and, and people are starting to appreciate these animals and that was one of the reasons why I myself got so interested is I, I, I we Celtic is based in Staffordshire which is rather ironic not being in a Celtic country but nevertheless <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> yeah exactly um, but um, what Staffordshire is not is not known for its reptile and amphibian populations, and and to be honest, they're pretty poor. There aren't that many species, nor are the amounts of species that we'd want. And it was that sort of absence from the landscape, and me reading books and 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 researching the diversity that used to be in Britain that really got me hooked. Um, and and you know wanting to restore these animals back to a land which which has almost forgotten them, like like the minds of people. Um, yeah, well, again, I can identify with that for sure, because I think exactly. I told you, growing up in Ireland, being a, a reptile and amphibian nerd wasn't very fun, because we've <laughs> only got one reptile. Yes, exactly, yeah. And uh, we're missing a few of your iconic amphibians as well. We've no common toads, and we only have one species of Newton. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were a very impoverished nation when it comes to reptiles and amphibians, thanks to St. Patrick, if you believe I, the mythology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean... It, Go on. I mean, the interesting thing when you look at the the uh, hooked fauna of of both Britain and Ireland, more 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 uh, Britain is that um, they, for their region they're actually quite poor, which is kind of unusual. And to some extent, that is as a that is a geologic and and, and paleontological reason, being the fact that the channels uh, formed when um, yeah. we were at quite a cold period, where the channel formed about seven thousand years ago. But also the other reason is widespread and continued anthropogenic habitat change. Uh, I'm talking about mass drainage of fens, the burning of scrub, um, the felling of, of, of vast forests. You know, Britain and Ireland have, have, are the, probably are the worst example of nature conservation in Europe. If there's, if there's not nature conservation, but, but natural world destruction in Europe, if we look back yeah. over thousands of years. Um, and it's this sort of constant hammering that amphibian and reptile populations cannot cannot cope with. Um, they're very, very sensitive. As you know, amphibians' uh, diseases can easily wipe them out. And, and um, they're, they're, even on an individual scale, they're creatures of habit. I mean, we, we watch our amphibians and reptiles and every single day they'll almost have some sort of some sort of a schedule, you know, they'll always be in this in, in a similar basking spot, and they always feed at the same place and drink at the same place, and bask at the same place, and and it's just it's quite remarkable. Even things like the tree frog, the European tree frog, um, I've watched it. Individuals have their own perching spots that they go back to every single day, and and you think that you know it's a tiny frog, 
you know, maybe mm. five centimeters, and, and this animal can can comprehend comprehend and sort of map out its surroundings. It's it's kind of unbelievable. And so, if you can imagine, you know, widespread change to that environment, even on a you know a tiny individual psychological basis, it's going to have a big big impact. Um, yeah, and I suppose I haven't really thought of this before, but there's such um, prehistoric orders of animals exactly, that they're yeah. almost kind of not robotic, but like what you're describing there, they have very fixed kind of behavior patterns. Exactly. So they've yeah. evolved to be perfectly adapted for their environment and, and their surroundings for exactly. millennia. But then when we came in very suddenly in the grand scheme of things and massively changed everything, they haven't coped very well with that. And and but there's also there's also a double edged sword to this at the same time because although we can have an overwhelming impact, at, you know, cutting down forests, burning scrub, you know, draining wetlands, whatever, yeah. it's also we take away the natural impacts as well. And so what we see, for instance, is when when no, it's no coincidence really that when we came in and, and killed off the beaver in Britain, the beavers weren't native to or we haven't had any evidence that beavers are native to Ireland, but in Britain, when the beaver was killed off, it was incidentally the same time that a few of these frog species, their um, records in the fossil in fossil records just stopped, and yeah. that is no coincidence. I mean, beaver wetlands, for instance, the beavers were put in 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 Devon at one site called um, I can't remember the name of the site, but it was Derek Gower. I know you've had him on the podcast, and and they did yeah. a fence reserve just a trial to see the ecological impacts. And the frog spawn clumps went from just six clumps of frog spawn. It was, I think it was either six or 10 to over 600 clumps within five years. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And so you can imagine we take away this cornerstone or keystone species, as we call them, ecological engineers from the landscape. And the whole guilds of amphibians and, and whatever species also come tumbling down. Um, yeah. And likewise, what we've seen in the Netherlands, the Netherlands have taken areas of dune and heath and rewild, rewild, done some incredible rewilding projects, mainly using European bison or wiesent, as they're called, and mm. proxies for aurochs. They've used highland cattle and het cattle and stuff. And what these animals do is they come into the landscape and they rip open the, the turf and the soil to expose bare um, bare sand almost or bare soil and these areas have now been recolonized by sand lizards so we can see again the sand lizard had a very has, has had a restricted range ever since almost the aurochs went extinct in britain and i'm not suggesting that you know it's it's as direct as that the aurochs went extinct but it's again a bit of a coincidence isn't it that these these two events coincided just- almost it just shows that everything is so connected. And when we're living in this, you know, the shifting baseline syndrome argument exactly. that when we think that, you know, things were normal 50 years ago or 20 years ago, um, you know, when we were younger um, or our parents' generation, actually that was still a very denuded landscape. Exactly. And we'd already taken out a lot of the biodiversity that then had impacts on everything else. So we lose that species richness and and things that were once widespread then become threatened or rare. Don't they? Exactly. And, and and likewise, the wild boar, for instance, um, well, I'm trying to find some data on it, and hopefully I will, or, or at least I'll try and measure the data. 
Um, but wild boar in the in the right areas create incredible shallow pools, wetland pools that are that are so characteristic of what natterjack toads use to uh, to spawn in. That again, right. it does, does not surprise me in any in any way that wild boar had some effect on amphibian populations. We know in Romania, for instance, we know that wild boar and yellow-bellied toads are are very much linked. Yellow-bellied toads colonise wild boar where wild boar have um, dug the soil. In their wallows, is yeah, it? the wallows, that's it, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it would not It would definitely not surprise me at all if the natterjack toad also followed these sort of uh, sort of pools. And again, the, the wild boar went extinct about, give or take, maybe 700 to 1,000 years ago. Um, and we see, again, a, a real contraction of the range at, at, at about the same time, not as not as uh, perfect as the sand lizard, but again, about the same time. So again, it, 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 it's, these, it's these ecological connections that, as you say, through shifting baseline syndrome and through the fact that we've just got a landscape which is largely a wet desert, that you can you can see when we start to restore and start to put these species back again, that uh, these sort of incredible, fascinating connections between species we would never associate with each other can allow t- to um, be facilitated again, and that's what we've got to do if we want to stand a chance at preventing mass biodiversity loss. Yeah, it's restoring that connectivity, isn't it? And um, seeing what happens and I guess yeah. that kind of uh, comes to the point of traditional conservation the conservation movement versus what some are you know saying is the new kind of rewilding movement They're, they are very different in their approaches um, and it kind of you know you can kind of see that the traditional conservation movement if we use the example of the natterjack toad is just really um, keeping tiny little remnant populations clinging on with sort of high management and um, human intervention and management of the landscape, whereas rewilding is actually allowing the landscape to heal and do its own thing and then kind of uh, hopefully seeing what comes back or allowing things to flourish as they did before by putting back in maybe some of those keystone species and things. But um, I think one of the, the issues with some conservationists, they see rewilding as maybe... Um, negative uh, about conservation, but we need traditional conservation as well to keep those little remnant populations alive, don't we? Well, that's the thing. I think that the traditional conservation uh, movement, which started sort of, you know, ever since sort of the end of the Victorian era and beyond, you know, through through the uh, post-war era as well, is a natural response to inheriting an already depleted landscape. Yeah. It's natural to, once you've lost, the, you know, if you lose anything, it's natural to cling on to the tiny pieces that you've got left. Um, and I think that's exactly what has happened, you know, in Britain, is that we have sort of hammered the landscape, you know, ever since we became a dominant land force, we've wiped out every every species which we imagined was... Um, we, we either was a direct Im- uh, d- direct impact on us or just we did, you know, looped... looped looked at us and we thought, you know, let's wipe it out. And, yeah. and and when when a country develops, as we know, when a country develops, it becomes more environmentally aware. And countries nowadays are developing much more quickly. I mean, like 30 years, a country can go from being um, a, an undeveloped nation to pretty much developed. 
Uh, and that's amazing because it means that we reduce the ecological loss very much so. Obviously, if we give more time for people to expand farms and kill off populations, then the, the more diluted nature is going to become. If you're Britain, and Britain had one of the longest development times ever because it was the first to become an industrial superpower, then what's going to happen is all of the animals and all of the, the biodiversity is going to be pretty much lost, and that's exactly what's happened. And we have some areas which are left, little gems, you know, incredible pl places to visit and things. Um, but it, again, it doesn't really encapsulate what true ecosystems, true nature really is, which is, you know, apex predators, large herbivores and everything in between sort of thing. So when we think about traditional nature conservation, it's amazing. Traditional nature conservation is brilliant. You know, it fulfills basically keeping the species alive. But as I said earlier, it may, you know, keep that tick in the box that, yes, there are natterjack toads in Britain, but does yeah. it necessarily mean that natterjack toads have a function in the wider ecosystem? And the answer is no. And and that's yeah. where rewilding... It almost could be seen as like a vanity project for us, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's where rewilding and restoration aims to take what I describe as a more holistic approach, an idea that we need to be looking at nature conservation in all of its elements, in all of its parts, so that we get a more functioning ecosystem. Um, and, and, you know, why, why, why do we want a more enriched um, ecosystem? I'm, sh I'm sure for, for me and you, Sean, it's just because it's amazing to have such incredible wildlife. But yeah. if, you're a, if you're a businessman or you're a farmer or, or whatever, what, what is the point? And the point well, I was going to ask you, Harvey, why, yeah. you know, the simple question that some people would ask is, why are reptiles and amphibians important in our ecosystems? Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, basically, what I was going to say is the, the, the more functioning, the, the, the better an ecosystem functions, the more natural an ecosystem is, the better flood resistance we have, the less likely species are, go, are going to go extinct, the more carbon sequestration we have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All, be, all you know, all range of factors from tourism which helps improve the local economy to more oxygen production you know it, it's yeah. it's it's the, the the diversity of improvements restoring nature has is is quite remarkable and coming on to reptiles and amphibians in in healthy populations there was a study found in in, in america they took 10 hectares of, of marshland and they counted all the biomass of all the amphibian and, and reptiles on all the amphibians sorry on the um, on the marshland and what they found was that the weight on 10 hectares of healthy marshland the amphibians weighed the same amount as a black rhino which is absolutely unbelievable to think that wow. these yeah. tiny little animals assemble into a force of nature and so if you put all these amphibians onto the landscape all these hungry mouths they help to you know, regulate invertebrate populations and even sequester carbon. We know that um, because amphibians eat detritivores, things like wood lice and earthworms, etc., they help to maintain soil carbon levels by stopping the detritivores growing out of control. And then, um, because obviously they digest the food, they release carbon dioxide uh, respiration. Yeah. 
and and they actually helped to lock carbon in the soil, which is just unbelievable to think that salamanders and frogs and newts and things actually have a direct effect on the very air we breathe. Um, and so we see that you know on on mass when we assemble all these uh, all these amphibians on mass, they really do perform an important function. Another one is increased disease resistance because they eat uh, vectors of disease such as ticks. Uh, mosquitoes and, and and lice and whatever they they yeah. help to reduce the impact of things like malaria and dengue fever which is unbelievable to think that you know again these amphibians are, are stopping people from dying and becoming ill you know you would never going back to ecological links you would never really make that link and it, it's amazing that we have because going back to you know ecosystem services it, it's a it's a real motive a real reason why we need to care and, and, and conserve these these animals again not just as a tick box species but as a function as a pure function and that's yeah. not to that's not to be that's not to be reductionist I, you know i love these animals and going out and seeing them it, you know it fills me with joy on a warm summer's day to to see wild lizards basking it's incredible you know you feel like you're in the presence of a dragon yeah but at the same time we've got to be thinking about how how we restore the ecosystem so we have a chance at, at surviving um, surviving this, you know, sixth mass extinction and we don't become yeah, a yeah. species which goes extinct. Absolutely. So rewinding the clock a little bit, um, you obviously, you know, are extremely passionate about the bigger picture and, and things, but um, just personally, what is your background and how did you kind of get into uh, reptiles and amphibians as your, your kind of uh, specialist area? So... It's one of those things that, you know, nature has always been a fascination and you can never put your finger on when, when exactly the, the, uh, the fire was lit, as it were. Um, yeah. But um, I've always kept stuff. You know, I've always gone outside and turned over logs and, and caught, you know, wood lice and brought them back in tubs and kept snails and all that sort of thing and, you know, all, all manner of different things because, you know, we don't have bears or we don't have wolves or something to get, you know, hooked on. It's the little things when in, in Britain when you're growing up, you know, what, what put a smile on your face. And, you know, I can remember I remember newt catching. I said, well, I still do it, but <laughs> newt <Yeah. laughs> catching as, as, a, as a boy, as a, as a little five-year-old or whatever with my parents. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun you know, to be a child and grow up in nature, I think it's what it makes you the person that you are. Um, yeah. And um, I started keeping uh, all manner of things. And one of the species I kept was stick insects. And I used to breed them. Um, and, and I used to breed them and sell them to the pet shop, you know, not not for much money, but it was, it was yeah. a little hobby that I had. Um, and then I got a tortoise and I kept this tortoise and it was, it was amazing having a, little uh, little tortoise running around on the lawn uh, and it practically started then my, my fascination with reptiles started exactly then it was the species that you know was was so exotic and so it was a dinosaur it was it was like jurassic park it was there was something about them that was so um prehistoric as you said earlier it's there's something you know quite something quite magnificent isn't there that draws you in and yeah. um it was it was from then onwards that the reptiles started, and I kept a few different exotic species. But it was when I realised that there was Victorian keepers who used to keep European species outdoors with great success, 
and and these are going these are going back to the first herpetologists in the in the eighteen thirties and stuff, and they used to keep all these animals out, outside in in enclosures and, and open vivaria. And, and over the, the coming months, I discovered that there's still a, a small community of people who do keep these animals outside and keep European species. Um, some mm. are very old. Some some of the, some of these people have you know been keeping them ever since they were young, and they're now sort of eighty years old. So it was something that I thought, oh, it may not be a bad idea to mobilise something. And that's when my friend Tom, who's been a lifelong friend, um, said to me, why don't we why don't we form some form of a company or an organization around this? And so we decided yeah. to. That was it, you know, and 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 uh, we came up with a name and we came up with what is gonna be our mission our mission. What do we want to achieve? Um yeah. and it started exactly there and that was a couple of years ago now. Um and and ever since the sky has been the limit. You know, it's been it's been amazing what what the people we've met and the progress we've made and now with building the facility, um, it's absolutely it's absolutely brilliant that what, what we've done. And bearing in mind, we're, we're both seventeen, so we're both still in education. Um, it's been an absolute, you know, I've, it's been crazy how busy things have got. But uh, but uh, I, I love being busy. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good stuff. Me. Well, I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but um, I can definitely identify with that story because I was <laughs> the exact same growing up. I just didn't have as much. Uh, interesting biodiversity in Ireland because we were cut <laughs> off even earlier uh, yes, from, yeah, from like, yeah. Europe um, and are a little bit like further north and west. But um, yeah, I mean, I can totally identify with that kind of fascination that you develop when you're you're really, really young. And I think, as you say, the little things are the things that first capture your attention because they're accessible to you, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. Um, and I think one of the sad things that I've seen with Ealing Wildlife Group in particular, when we do open days or, you know, um, park events for families and things is, I hate to say kids nowadays, because it makes me sound like you know, <laughs> crotch, crotchety old man, but kids nowadays sometimes have never picked up a woodlouse or certainly not, you know, gone fishing for a newt or, or tadpoles in some cases. So we're losing that connection with young people exactly, to yeah, the, yeah. the natural world, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, th- I think that I think a lot in part has just got to do with the modern world. And I think people, the communication between people and how people interact with each other has changed, you know, through social media and whatever. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a romantic. I don't like to say, oh, you know, the good old days when, you know, I we, we had nothing better to do and we used to go out catching newts, you know. I, I don't, yeah. I aren't a romantic. I'd never see, you know, we can, nev- we can only go forwards, not back. And so... We've got to up our game as conservationists. That's how I see it. So that's why we started the YouTube and we've got extensive social media is because that's the way that we're going to reach out to people. And we are. And yeah. It's been incredible that the the support that we've that we've been met with. Um, and the reality is that um, every single person on Earth um, descended from hunter gatherers who lived on the plains in Africa. And so ingrained with all in all of our dna is this is this ability this affinity to love nature known as biophilia is eo wilson yeah. the great biologist and so if you can tap into that if you can tap into that love of the natural world and of landscapes and and a connection a connection to something bigger then i think you've won half the battle um and i think i think um the problem that we have you know in britain and stuff is is People like the sexy animals. People like the big animals, you know, the lynx and, and the megafauna and the wolves and the bears and, 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 
and you know just look at africa and the lions and the elephants everything you know people love yeah. those sort of big animals because they're easy to relate to and and i think that that's just a product of our own sort of um, ignorance you know in wiping out the bigger animals and and now we're seeing you know bringing beavers bra- uh, back bringing uh, bison back to kent which is a new project now um is really starting to engage some people you would never thought to to be interested and linking this with the fact that environmentalism has become quite trendy, don't like to use the word, but it's the only way to describe what's happened. We yeah. are starting to see this shifting demographic of where people are are starting to love nature again. And that's great. You know, that's absolutely brilliant. And it's what we need. Uh, yes, it's come late, it, but, but everything is late, if, if, you know, according to a conservationist. So, yeah. It's a case of, you know, we've got to adapt to the times. We can't, we can't be set in the ways of the past. Um, but at the same time, it's about using um, the fact that everyone loves nature to our, to our own advantage. And, and I mean, that's what we do. I mean, we do school talks and group talks and, and, and we'll sometimes bring animals along because nothing beats, you know, giving a kid a frog and just let, yeah. and, and, and let, letting them look at it because it creates that, that perfect sort of moment where just their eyes light up with joy because they love, you know, kids love nature, you know, in, inherently. Um, and and let's be honest, Harvey, frogs are the best. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, definitely. Yeah, they are. Definitely. You couldn't, you know, couldn't disagree with you there. And and, and that's the thing. Um, it's about creating connection, about becoming, um, becoming, you know, getting ourselves out there to enough people in the right way and and we'll we'll win we'll win completely yeah absolutely um, and and you know and that's what we're trying to do with the youtube channel and 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 things like that is we're just trying to become um to some extent um interesting and trendy and, and take away the the sort of um, antiquity that conservation can sometimes can sometimes behold yeah so obviously i first um came across you guys through a YouTube clip, it was recommended on YouTube because obviously their algorithm knows what I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you create a great content there, but I think it's it's about um, entertaining people as much as educating them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that's the part and parcel of connecting people to nature. I mean, it's just as much entertainment as it is um, as, as education. And I think there's yeah. that there's, there's one thing that we have learned because we're in this. We're actually in a coalition of of YouTube. Uh, channels who have all pledged to help advance um, amphibian and reptile keeping um, to to their to as best as possible, you know, as, as good as good as possible for for one reason being conservation. How can how can private keepers have a role in conservation? Uh, but also, uh, how can keepers advance ethical guidelines of keeping these species? Because um, we're only just starting to scratch the surface about how these animals live and interact in the environment. And uh, we're learning more and more the vitalness of things like UV and a proper diet. Um, yeah. And uh, the one thing that we've learned is you can put out a really nerdy video, a really, you know, I'd love to, I love writing um, nice long um, videos with scientific referencing and everything. And you get no views. No one's interested. No. But then you put out a really educated, really entertaining video and you get loads of views, but you don't get the engagement. People aren't as, people are just watching it for entertainment. So 
it's about getting that balance between education and entertainment where you find that you know you can build a nice a good community from that and that's what we're just starting to learn um and and we can announce it now because I think it's pretty much I think it's pretty uh, well known. But with the facility that we're building, we are starting a little series that's coming out along along with that, and that's going to be uh, that's been based off of how this year of YouTube has gone, which has gone really well. Um, where we're going to be documenting everything about the facility. Yes, it's, there's going to be an, an element of entertainment and and fun and whatever, and, and try and make it you know. Um, try and have some comedic moments because we need it living in the living on the uncertain times that we're living in. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's going to be packed full of education and um, conservation and um, just the amazingness of these of these animals that we work with. Yeah, brilliant. I was looking at your website earlier and um, just looking at the page about your ethos and you know what you kind of the pillars that you stand for. So it broadly, you're kind of listing conservation education. Um, producing captive bred stock um, yeah. with a view to kind of um, taking the pressure off wild populations and reintroduction and then kind of uh, ethics and um, research as well so yeah. scientific understanding um, of the animals can you talk to me a little bit about um, the kind of um, we've talked a good bit about kind of conservation and, and education but um, producing captive bred stock yeah. like what's the long-term aim there are you going to kind of follow the Derek Gow route and um, produce kind of captive bred amphibians and reptiles for release into this country? Um, well, the ultimate aim is, 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 is that, you know, there's no hiding that at all. It, we, to have, a, uh, have an establishment like Derek's got, it would be incredible. Um, of course, there's lots of bureaucracy and red tape surrounding reintroductions, and, and sh- so there should be, you know, the animals, yeah. the, these sorts of species are vectors for, uh, you know, all sorts of different pathogens, and it would be dreadful to get them in the in the wild populations. Um, but to the point where you tie something up with so much red tape that you trip over and break your arm, um, there is a lot of work that has got to be done in in just peeling back the layers of being so paranoid. You know that you, as a result, you reduce the potential biodiversity you know that can come of that Um, and that's what we're working on we can't we can't speak too much about it of course but we are trying to push for wider reintroductions at scale at the same time as producing captive stock because we with the facility we already produce quite good numbers but with the facility that's going to be completely um you know it's going to be tenfold bigger than what we produce now um, so you're developing a new facility as we speak. Right? Yes, as we speak. Yeah, I was there. Well, I was there today with the press actually because we're doing a bit of a press release. Um, right. And basically, uh, some of the animals will be for zoos and establishments. We've already got orders from a few zoos for various different species. They go out to zoos uh, along with the private sector. So they go to willing and committed owners. We do always try and. Uh, well, we always do a check on how they intend to keep them, etc. We always advise to keep outdoors. Um, and then also, hopefully, for reintroductions. Um, and it's always going to be a bit of a, of, a, of a push because it's never going to be easy with all the red tape. But from the support that we've got so, from so many different people, the actual feasibility of reintroducing these animals is becoming a lot more apparent. Um, and it's a case of just connecting with as many different people to realise that we're all singing from the, hay, the the same sort of hymn sheet, and yeah. um, 
we're always going to be fighting for the right thing and we've got to we've got to break down walls you know and build bridges um and that's exactly what we're, we're starting to do and again the facility right. the facility uh, we can go into more detail later but the facility is not only just for sheer production it's also for inspiration a place where people can come and visit and see that you know that these animals are incredible and we can share our enduring love of these of these incredible animals and teach people about them and their importance exactly exactly yeah exactly so moving on then to like the species themselves you keep over 20 species of uk and european uh, reptiles and amphibians but let's just talk about the uk um position for a minute um how many native reptiles and amphibian species do we have in the uk it depends what it depends what you you know you classify as native or extinct yeah. or whatever. But li- yeah. living right now, we've got three species of lizard. So that's the sand lizard, the common lizard, and the slow worm. We've got yeah. three species of snake, which is the smooth snake, grass snake, and adder. We've got yeah. three newts, which is the smooth palmate and crested newt. Um, and then yeah. we've got two frogs, which is the pool frog and the common frog, and two toads, which is the natterjack. And the common toad. Um, so it's thirteen species altogether uh, in Ireland of native of, of, of yeah. native animals. In Ireland, you've got the common lizard and the smooth newt, the common frog, and the natterjack. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Britain was, as, as we've probably alluded to, we had a more higher diversity of reptiles and amphibians relatively recently. That's where the name Celtic actually comes from. It's it's. It's in, a, in acknowledgement of the fact that there was a higher diversity of amphibians and reptiles during the Celtic Age. Um, yeah. And that, that being said, that is the European pond turtle was native to Britain, which is incredible. It's a beautiful freshwater species that extends as far north as, as uh, Latvia. And in some places it's, it's in Belarus, but it, there's also sightings in Latvia and, and in Denmark, actually. So it, it, right. it's even further north than, than most of England. Um, then there's the uh, Agile frog, which went extinct possibly in the 16th century, co- coinciding with the beavers. Um, and yeah. that's a, a cool little frog. It jumps, it can jump over two metres. Um, it's a real agile species. And it's a specialist of sort of more open country than the common frog, quite open grassland. Um, and yeah. it breeds in in slightly different water conditions than the common frog. And then the other one is the the moor frog. And the moor frog is really cool because it turns blue in the breeding season. It's it's like it's like oh, an yeah. alien. It's just so incredible. And they gather in these huge numbers in especially in Eastern Europe where they've got really good populations of them. Um, gathers in these massive masses, you know, that's that around lakes and stuff in sort of February and March. Um, and that again went extinct, possibly in the 16th century. Um, we think that widespread fenland drainage, which has taken place uh, for almost a thousand years, is probably what extinguished the moor frog because it requires pretty large bodies of water with with quite well vegetated edges, with some open areas, so they can spawn. So it was probably fenland drainage which which really um, which really got that one. Uh, along yeah. with beavers, you know, we I was talking to actually a German ecologist a few weeks ago, and he was saying that uh, more frogs are incredible uh, beaver wetland specialists. They, that you'll always find them in 
uh, beaver wetlands in, in, in Germany. Um, yeah. And that leads on to the European tree frog as well, which was a... Um, which was possibly native to Britain. We're not 100%. We know it was here in the Pleistocene, uh, but there was also a colony in the New Forest. Now, I doubt that that colony was was native um, because there's there's some there's there's actually some reports from a friend I've heard that that there's a guy who where the colony was who kept tree frogs once upon a time. So it wouldn't be you know put two and two together. It wouldn't be too impossible to imagine that uh, you know he may may have been the source for the uh, for the frogs but um yeah. there are there are actually historical accounts of european tree frogs in britain now of course that's not anything concrete that's not like fossil evidence but um prominent naturalists like sir christopher merritt and thomas brown were writing about these tree frogs um Say, saying, you know, there's a frog that lives on bushes, which is an excellent parrot green. I mean, there's no other frog in Europe that matches that no. description. And European tree frogs, they're incredibly hardy. I was When I was with the, the press today, we uh, I was looking in the pond just to see if there was anything there in, in one of the enclosures. And there was a tree frog frozen solid by the edge of the pond. And, and people, you know, people, oh, worry about that. No. Tree frogs can can have actually got an antifreeze agent in in their blood, which can stop them from um, freezing. They just slightly raise the glucose levels in their blood, um, and and literally incredible, isn't it? It is incredible, and I've seen them. I've seen them do it before, and and I'll check on them later in the day, and they would have thawed out, and they're none the worse for the experience. It's it's absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. And on top of that, they're not a species which is a tree, which is a tree, which is arboreal. They're not tree specialists, although it's in the name. They're more sort of scrubland. On brambles and stuff, don't yeah, you? Yeah, bramble scrub. You know, quite open country. I don't know if you know. Well, you must know the Nep Estate, Sean. I sure do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nep is the perfect habitat for tree frogs. That sort of rough, open terrain is is like sort of. Yeah. Bingo for tree frogs. And so, again, when we see, you know, herbivores being removed from the landscape and, and creating thickly wooded um, landscapes, we can see that the tree frog would have been pushed out. Yeah. And at NEP, they would have had, they have the, you know, the pigs as well. Exactly. Wallow, yeah, yeah. Stuff like exactly. that patchwork or mosaic of habitats yeah, yeah, that suits yeah. a lot of species, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the one thing with, with wild boar, there is a criticism within reptile groups of wild boar eating animals in hibernation especially digging up adder hibernaculums um, yeah but i think that that that's as a result of us only having these tiny parcels of land in the first place i mean if we had if we had you know if one nature reserve was five thousand acres say a lot uh, you know to a similar size of the nep estate we wouldn't be worrying about small hibernacular because you've got a constant constant mosaic yeah. that's always changing uh, where niches are being opened up all the all the time, we wouldn't have to worry and about dispersed you know, population of exactly, across the entire exactly, place, yeah, right? yeah. So you know, it's it, people, you know, with the whole rewilding movement and and reptiles and things, people are are reluctant because because they are used to again shifting baseline syndrome. They are used to this to just conserving small areas, small penny packet size areas. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the criticisms as well, then, of, of rewilding. So, for example, let's use the European tree frog as an example. It's kind of argued, is it native? Is it not? Um, maybe it's harder to prove from the fossil record because less fossil records exist yeah. of tiny little creatures. You know, exactly. so they can identify yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, with kind of accuracy. Um, one of the arguments against rewilding and reintroducing lost species, for example, would be that, you know, we're doing a, a terrible job as it is looking after our existing species. Why would we throw more uh, more into the mix? You know, they're destined for failure, etc. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, you can see the logic, can't you? You can see that, you know, what, why, why bother, you know, increase spending or whatever on reintroductions. But it's kind of like trying to run a car when half the engine is not there. It's never going to work. In order for ecosystems to function, going back to ecosystem services, you've got to have every single compartment in place for the whole thing to work. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is we put beavers back in. We actually decrease spending on conservation because they do the job for you. It's exactly. This, yeah. It's this fallacy that the idea that reintroduction is costly Reintroducing white-tailed sea eagles on Mull in Scotland bring brought in the sea eagles now are estimated to be worth two hundred and fifty million pounds because of all the all the money that they bring into the local economy. People, you know, if you imagine, let's go sea eagle uh, watching. You're going to stay at a hotel for a few nights. There's some money. You're going to eat in the local pub. There's some money. You're going to pay a a guide to take you around the island to see the eagle, there's some money. And, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of tourists see them a year and spend lots of money. And so these animals have got an, you know, got a, a, even a monetary, you know, if you want to be really cold, uh, if you want to be cold in an economist, then you can look at it in that way. Another thing Mm. is that by bringing back these species, we actually increase awareness of the whole ecosystem. Flagship yeah, species. They almost act as like, I was going to say flagships, right? Exactly, yeah, bingo. And, um, and that's the thing, you know, you bring back beavers, they have an amazing effect on the landscape, but they're also dead cute and actually really cool animals, you know, discounting their ecological impacts. And by doing that, we raise awareness for, for the plight of wetlands all across the world. Um, yeah. and, and likewise, think species such as the bison, the most threatened habitat in the world is grassland because of agricultural expansion. And by reintroducing things like the European bison, yes, it isn't a, gra- a completely grassland species, but we increase the awareness, which is for good, open habitat mosaics, which are so important in, in, in Britain and, and, and Europe. And, and going to your other point about non-native species, we've always got to be really informed and, and we've got to use the best science when when. Um, you know, looking at, at species reintroductions. But the reality is that um, that if we, European bison, for instance, are not are not native to, to the UK at all. We, we haven't found any fossil evidence that they were here. The last time that a species was similar, bison, uh, Shoentaki or Shoenstaki is the, is, the na- is the scientific name, was over, mm. over 26,000 years ago. But the reality is bison live just 20 miles over the channel. And if you, you know, yeah. just in the Netherlands and in France, there's going to be very little harm, if any at all, and even a positive gain on the ecosystem by just moving them. Because the habitat in Britain is exactly the same to the habitat in France. There's no difference. If it was introducing bison to Australia, yes, there'd be a massive, you know, you, you wouldn't support that because there's no, you know... The, the, they didn't evolve anywhere near. didn't evolve anywhere near, you know, it's not in the same sort of biome either. Um, But when we're looking at, you know, habitats which are virtually the same, ecosystems which are virtually the same, 
there's there's very little harm and it's likewise with with the frogs and uh, and reptiles i'm not saying that we should uh, reintroduce non-native species that would be stupid but let's say let's say for instance you know the fossils were fakes they were made by someone to prove that you know they were made by me to prove that we had more amphibian species when when we actually didn't um then the the whole the whole um you know if we reintroduce more frogs the, the actual ecological impact would be would be pretty null because they live literally just across the channel and and may actually be beneficial so we've exactly. seen exactly i think i did a previous um episode called unwelcome wildlife with jack badams i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but yes i've heard, we're I've talking heard about, yeah the fact that you know non-native or invasive species traditionally we've always just used if they're not native they're they're automatically bad news but actually um some species can have a beneficial effect on the ecosystem, even if they yeah. didn't originally belong there. Yeah, yeah, no, um, exactly. Classic example in Ireland, back home, my dad does a good bit of work with barn owls, and um, they've seen barn owls spreading and, and doing quite well in the countryside because um, the horticultural industry introduced the white-toothed shrew. We only oh. have a pygmy shrew in Ireland. Oh, and wow. they actually found that we had this new species of shrew from analysing barn owl pellets. Um, and they've seen that actually with the spread of the um, white tooth shrew, barn owls actually are doing quite well because it's a new um, a new level of the food chain or a new like yeah, element yeah. of the chain that they didn't have before. So there can sometimes be, you know, un, unknown or unwarranted um, beneficial effects as well of some of these things, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's, I think the figure is something like 95% of all, of all non-native species have have no impact, you know, uh, or unnoticeable. And one of the interesting things actually is that you never really hear of non-native species in wilderness areas, do you? You never really hear of, of invasive species in, in pure wilderness, you know, think the Amazon, think Alaska, think the Swedish mm. land. You never, and the reason is because these ecosystems are intact and they've got most of the niches filled, there isn't any room for another animal or plant species to come along and take the niche. Yeah, that's a good point. And even when they do, even when they do in places like the Amazon, they just seem to slip in and they're contained. You know, they don't seem to spread as far. Their, yeah. their noxious impacts are not as as are not as um, are not as rampant. And, and a great example of that is the um, uh, is the grey squirrel. The grey squirrel, which was introduced in Victorian times in in, in Britain. Uh, as, as all over the country now, uh, but probably as a result of goshawks and pine martins being such heavily persecuted animals, you know, that that, that meant that um, the pine martins, that there was no predator for the, you know, keeping the grey squirrel in check, whereas the red squirrel had lived with these two predators for, for such a long time that it, it co-evolved with them. Um, yeah, and so you know, if we if we if we really want to have resilience against invasive species, then we need to restore ecosystems. We need to restore ecosystems. It's like yeah. again, okay. another example is Himalayan balsam. We know beavers eat Himalayan balsam, and do they? Or, <laughs> not they don't completely Good. wipe it out, but they eat it. But what they also do is because they create bigger habitats with more plant species instead of just you know. A straight river with just you know banks, and they create all these ponds and whatever. Bare banks, yeah. They create you know lots of different niches which the uh, Himalayan balsam can't completely occupy. So you know they they have a great impact with invasive species. So so yeah, yeah. the answer is restore nature. 
Yeah, the pine marten um, one is something I've talked about before. And we're seeing red squirrels pushing back from their like, yeah. remnant populations in the West, following the, the success of the pine marten moving west or moving east across the country in Ireland as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, something that many people don't get. But if we allow those levels, those kind of like um, levels of the food chain to reestablish, things start to balance out, don't they? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. What about, Harvey, um, I know we're fair, get coming fairly short on time now, but what about the um, issues of non-native um, reptiles and amphibians in this country? We have a few, right? What are what are the issues, if any, with some of those species? Um, there are, so there's there's a few different introduced species in, in Britain. But the majority of them are European, so species such as the marsh frog and, and the European uh, wall lizard, the Mediterranean wall lizard. Yeah. Uh, but the Alpine reality new. and Alpine newt, yeah. But the reality is, as we were saying earlier, they come from a very similar ecosystem. And although there may be local effects, such as wall lizards, of for instance, there is some evidence. It's quite weak, but there is some evidence of wall lizards. Uh, pushing out sand lizards, both through possibly a pathogen, but also uh, just th- through competitive exclusion. Um, yeah. Although there are local effects, if we restore the land to you know and provide massive areas for 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 wildlife, then we can create a system where there are always niches opening and closing, and where you know on a twenty acre site, if wall lizards get released, that's it for the sand lizards. That won't happen if we've got you know, 2,000 to 20,000 acres of land. It's building uh, resilience into the exactly, land. Exactly, exactly, you know. Um, and the reality is I'm actually quite fond of the fact that we have a few more exotic uh, faces, you know, in the herptofaunal uh, guilds. I think it's quite nice to see um, yeah. different animals. I mean, we've always got to be scientifically correct and we've always got to monitor the populations to see what effect they have. And, yes, there are disease risks, but overall, yeah. uh, overall, it's quite delighting to see you know a, a more a larger plethora of uh, amphibian and reptiles in Britain. Yeah, have you read the book uh, The New Wild? Yes, I have. Yeah, brilliant book, really good book. It's um, on it's on my book pile. I haven't got around to I it mean, yet. But, uh... I take it with a pinch of salt because it does have a stab at rewilding. Uh, right, but um, it's a good book. It's it's a very good book. It's well written. Um, and it's very yeah. interesting. I mean, the, the one of the problems you have with the whole um, invasive species don't attack. Like, I'm not saying, for instance, that we should not get rid of invasive species. Invasive species are a problem. Uh, but what I'm saying is they're not as... I, I don't think we should be putting all of our eggs into the one basket because the reality is the biggest impact the landscape has is people. Um, yeah. And so... The thing is, one of the problems you have with invasive species is it's it's a um, it it's been adopted by you quite extreme animal rights groups because they see you know conservation coming in and and destroying invasive species. You know yeah, there are ethical yeah. you know there are ethical issues with you know should we even extinguish animals which have established them? You know I'm not going to answer yes or no. But it has well, been we just adopted, had a big. You know? um, we had a big debate on this on Ealing Wildlife Group over the weekend about ringneck parakeets and grey squirrels. And yes, exactly. It's yeah, a yeah. lively debate. Yeah, <laughs> people and, have different moral frameworks, right? Some people exactly. are animal rights. Some people are animal welfare. Some people are, you know, respect for nature and ecosystems. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's no and, one right answer, sir. 
and that's the thing it's you know where where and that and that's the beauty but also the one of the problems with conservation is although it is a science and although it, you know there are many scientific aspects to it at the end of the day there's a conscious there are conscious decisions people have to make you know the first one being should we even conserve nature and we're always going to differ on how we you know think the right what the right thing to do is um but the reality is you know we've got to at the end of the day restore nature you know using the cu- current scientific scientific uh, models and, and findings you know the, the one personally at least the one thing we've we've all got to agree on is restoring nature in some at some scale to stand a chance yeah. of what's to come so Harvey like obviously it is a really exciting venture that you're embarking on and I admire your knowledge and enthusiasm it's great to talk to you but you have had uh, a few critics I think it's fair to say would you agree with that yeah definitely um I think that's only natural especially when it's a, a new venture and when it's done by two young people as well uh we may you know it's hard to try and explain that um our inspiration and our motivation is in the right place yeah um and i think that it it's vital as as conservationists who are you know looking more holistically at, at managing biota that we need to take on board all sorts of different types of criticism because it only makes us stronger yeah yeah so the first thing that i've seen like looking at you know your own social media and kind of the wider um talk around what you're doing <laughs> and i see it with lots of rewilding projects getting this remark is that there's an argument a lot of people put forward that we should be concentrating really on habitat restoration and restoring the populations of the species we currently have, not kind of trying to establish long lost ones. What would you say to that? Well, I think that fundamentally the question is is unfounded, partially because um, it's almost framed as an either or. And I don't think in conservation we should ever limit ourselves to just the species we have. Um I think a prime example of that is that if we look, as I've mentioned previously, at, at the services amphibians provide, how can we even yeah. think about conserving ecosystems when not all the pieces are intact? And I know that's easier said than done because naturally we should have wolves, lynx and bear here uh, in Britain as well as aurochs and, and all sorts of wild beasts. Um, but we should be adhering if, if we want to move forward in terms of progressive conservation at what ecosystems were like um, before uh, mass human intervention, basically. Um, and so yeah. I think I think that preserving the status quo, although I understand it, it on, on the face of it, it is a logical argument, um, I don't think that it, it's well-founded in, in, in the science or even in um, the narrative that is rewilding. Um, and, and, and our work that we're doing, we're both working with, the native species such as common toads, common lizards. We, we've got plans to do some um, uh, translocation and reintroduction work of the common species. The common toad has seen a 68% decline in the last 50 years, um, as well as um, the investigation of, of um, the lost native species such as the moor, agile and pond turtle. Um, and that's the thing really. We, we Another thing that we, we need to touch on is the fact that we, we aren't intending to release non-native species. And I think that the Guardian article, it was, it was brilliant and really well worded. But the one thing it didn't uh, kind of, it was a bit ambiguous on was the fact that we are only investigating at this point. We're not releasing. We're only investigating. 
the species which have been proven to be native. So I've said it, I've said it once and I'll say it again. That's the moor frog, the agile frog, possibly the tree frog and the pond turtle. Um, mm. And yeah, I think I think I think that conserving the status quo, although it, although it's logical on the, on the surface, um, if we look at how ecosystems need to function in the twenty first century, I don't think as it has a place in the narrative that is becoming rewilding. Yeah, yeah. And here's um, maybe a little controversial one to throw in that I've just thought of. But do you think like what would you think to the argument that this is um, you know? sexy PR version of conservation that, you know, the last 50 years of traditional conservation and still seeing declines in loads of species, um, maybe, you know, there's a, there's a benefit to bringing in some long lost um, species that capture the public's imagination exactly, and inspire yeah, yeah. people and get them to be yeah. interested in, you know, having those conversations about all the other things like habitat restoration and connectivity and da da da. But maybe it needs some, sexier species or exactly. some like species that capture the imagination like they're lost let's restore them that does seem to be capturing imagination of people who haven't previously engaged with traditional conservation what do you think exactly no i completely agree and, and it's the sort of incredible support that projects like the beaver project and uh white storks and uh, why exactly the perfect example is the white stork i mean Hundreds of thousands of people watched the white storks fly all, all over Britain and even to France. That is how you engage people en masse to the natural world. And we need it more than ever at this in this point of time. It has been it has been labelled as uh, populism in conservation. And, and I completely disagree. I don't think that that is um, that that is a, an appropriate criticism. I think it's quite an immature criticism, to be to be perfectly honest, um, because what we need if we if we want any chance of of um consolidating the natural world is widespread consent because people are one directly impacted by nature and two should directly get the gains that are from nature such as you know flood mitigation disease prevention etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so i think that definitely we need um some flagship species to really engage the public but at the same time not lose the idea that we're not just restoring a tick box species, which is one of the things I also mentioned in the article, uh, but we are restoring mm -hmm. a function, you know, a biomass to the landscape in which many things can, can benefit from. Um, well, like you said earlier, it's not just like a vanity project to put pool frogs back in three ponds. Exactly. It's you want to restore these species on a wide scale and get exactly, people to yeah. realise that the wide scale restoration of nature is the, the fundamental thing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And and, and that's what we've got to do um, if we want any chance of having a uh, functional uh, natural world on this island. Yeah, yeah. I think the point you make about, um, you know, it not being one or the other is really important because you do see this, you know, at, at times quite serious infighting or outfighting, I guess, between you know, your traditional conservationists versus your rewilders. And it's like, why are, why are they both sides fighting against each other? Because ultimately kind of want the same thing. Exactly. Um, well, and I, I think, you know, as you say about status quo, I, I think that also extends to um, the conservation that we employ, whether it's restoration and, you know, hands off the reins or uh, traditional conservation. And they can both coexist. And there needs to be some great... Um, 
conversation between the two methods so that we can find an efficient way of conserving nature. Sorry, I, I, I interrupted you, but carry on. No, you're grand, you're grand, that's it. Um, yeah, I think it's just, I think, like traditional conservation, not to be, you know, critical of it, but at, in certain things, it's not working. It's, it's swallowing huge amounts of money and time and resource. Um, but we're still seeing all these declines and things. So it's massively got its place and it has saved um, certain species. But I think the rewilding movement is about um, larger scale kind of nature restoration. Functionality. Yeah, and dynamic processes and, and systems coming back that, that have been lost. Exactly, um, yeah. So secondly, I think, you know, the other kind of broad category of, of um, criticism that I'm sure you, you're coming under is there seems to be a fear or a hesitancy from people working in nature conservation for a long time. And I think it's well-founded around the spread of disease from captive to wild populations and also about the kind of genetic risk that you have when you're introducing captive animals from a fairly closed gene pool into the wild population. And we don't really know if that's going to have a detrimental effect until we've done it. So what kind of mitigation have, have you guys put in place? You know, if you do come to release certain species, what kind of um, steps have you put in place to kind of prevent those issues or to alleviate those fears? So the first thing I'd, I'd like to say is the fact that all of these issues are very serious issues and, and we take these issues with um, the severity that they deserve. I mean, chytrid fungus, for instance, is a disease which has seen in some places the complete collapse of amphibian populations. So it's something we should not take lightly. But at the same time, uh, I think that many of these issues have very efficient solutions and the actual issue themselves is is overplayed a lot. Um, it's funny, isn't it, that we, we get pulled up on, on disease or whatever, yet millions upon millions of fish from mainly in Europe and Asia, are imported to the UK each year, bringing millions of tonnes of water, you know, which amphibians would have would have bred and lived in, uh, without a question. I mean, none of this gets, none of this gets, you know, questioned or at least, you know, gets... For the pet trade, you mean? Or? For the pet trade and for uh, angling and things like that. And so yeah. um, I think that, that these issues are, are definitely important, but at the same time, um, I think they're almost in response to what we're doing, but what we do, you know, to to not to not to um, to not just try and um, de you know try and debunk this argument by just saying oh point the finger at something else, but what we actually do is we have a biosecurity protocol, and this protocol has been has been written up by me and a few other colleagues, um, in which and it's what we adhere to. Um, it's a set of rules and uh, a method. So the method is the block system. And what that is, is within the facility, we have different areas where we basically cut them off from everywhere else. So if you go in between the enclosures, you have to sanitize, uh, step in a foot dip, etc. And that's using Vircon or F10, which are well-known veterinary uh, disinfectants. Yeah. And so um, by doing that, if any animals ever become ill or there are any clinical signs of them becoming ill, we can easily then isolate the animal, you know, social distance the animal basically from from everything yeah. else. Um, and on the other thing, uh, the other thing we do is quarantine. So if any new animals come into the facility, we give them a quarantine. And that's usually about a month to six weeks. It depends uh, on what the, whether the species is high risk. And the other thing is we, we avoid keeping species which are high risk 
transmitters. So that's things like midwife toads. We have kept them, but the ones we've kept have been tested for chytrid and also uh, are the British uh, type, which um, has been proven to be uh, resistant to chytrid fungus. And we and we haven't kept things like alpine newts, etc., which which are vectors of chytrid fungus. Um, and and that's it really, testing as well. So before any reintroduction sh- should take place, uh, we test things, uh, test, test, and test. Yeah, because that, that's I was going to say, presumably you'd need to do that to, in order to be able to reintroduce anything. Exactly, right? yeah. And, and, that, and it comes back to the point that, that we're saying, we haven't reintroduced anything willy-nilly. You know, we want the consent from both Natural England, DEFRA, and following the, the guidance of the IUCN guidelines on reintroduction and restoration. So um, testing would, is incredibly important, as well as quarantine and the block system. And all those, those protocols um, work as one. Um, and mm. and that's it. I mean, we, we're no different to kind of like a zoological establishment. I mean, the, the quarantine has been, we've had people from zoos give guidance and things, and, and it's no different to have zoos operate their collection. If anything, it's more secure than zoos because we haven't got a wide range of taxa. We've got a very concentrated group of animals. And because of that, we can get experts from those ta- species of animals in to uh, to ensure that, that our biosecurity system is up to scratch. Um, and I think, you know, yeah. it, it's it's vastly overplayed sometimes, this argument. But at the same time, it's well-founded and, and we need to answer these questions. As to genetic... Yeah, what, um, what about the genetic stuff? Yeah. yeah. So one of the main priorities in our ethos is to always uh, make sure that when we're breeding, we're neither inbreeding and therefore restricting, creating a bottleneck in, in the gene pool, but at the same time, not outbreeding so that we're crossing uh, localities. Um, and of course, this is all subjective to a degree and before we buy stock we always try and find out where their origin is um just so that we know um what how how it'll let us you know breed with the existing stock that we've got and of course um it's always the case of you know this animal that for instance this pond turtle is from moldova this one's from ukraine do we breed them well they're very close together the countries are yes we do you know, this pond turtle is from Spain, this one's from Kazakhstan, then the answer would be no. Um, and again, it, it, it's one of those things that's, that's not black and white. It, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes. And that's why we ask people um, what their opinion is. And, and I'm talking all range of people from herb experts to hobbyists. And, and I'll often ask them, send them an email or a message or something saying, you know, this is the situation. We've got an animal from X. What would you do? Uh, and that's what we find works best in terms of, of, of genetics. And of course, you know, if we were going to do any reintroduction, this would be something that we would that we would look into, whether we do genetic testing or, or, or whatever. But all of our animals or one of our key aims is always making sure they're genetically fit. Um, and that and that is and on that basis, we've we've actually um, we've actually resisted keeping certain species because there are very few animals in captivity and therefore uh, we wouldn't have a great gene base. But on top of all of this, amphibians and reptiles are incredibly resistant to inbreeding. I'm not saying that we do it, not at all. But again, this argument is is almost overplayed because um, these animals are adapted. To, you know, for instance, imagine lizards on a wall, you know, just a few lizards isolated on a rocky outcrop somewhere. They've developed over the millions of years of being on this planet to have a level of inbreeding resistance. And so, again, it's, it's, an, it's something that's vastly overplayed. 
But we try again, we try our best and, and we get expert opinion because that's what it's all about. And one thing I will touch on yeah. is, is, is legality, if that's OK, because um, we've no had project. people you know, talking about legality. And, and the reality is the, the legislation we're looking at for the animals is um, European Protective Species and the Wildlife and Countryside Act. And both of these pieces of legislation uh, basically negate that captive bred animals are exempt as long as you can prove they're captive. And that's why we have paperwork on the species as well as um, contact details and photos of the animal's parents and stuff so that we've always got a paper trail. Um, and that's what, that's, what we, that's what we do, basically, um, because that, that makes it perfectly legal then. Good stuff. Well, I think that should hopefully allay a lot of people's uh, hesitancy or concerns that, you, you know, you do know what you're doing. You have people helping you out and um, and advising you on, you know, the right way to do things down and the that, line. So, and that's another thing. I mean, if anyone has got significant concerns, ask us. And if not, if you're a person who has got expertise, reach out to us. We'd always love your help and your opinion. That You know, that's exactly it. And, and I would hate to be in a stance where, you know, we, we'd argue about it. I'm always open to different people's opinions. And it doesn't mean I'll agree, but it does mean I'll take on, on board what you say. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, look, okay, let's get on to the more optimistic and uh, positive stuff to wrap up then. <laughs> well, what's next for, um, for Celtic? You've said uh, or hinted at this new facility. Tell us a little bit about it. So we're, we're lucky enough to have, have acquired funding to build um, it's going to be the largest open-aired facility for European reptiles and amphibians in the UK, which is fabulous. Uh, we can't wait. Um, and it's going to allow us basically to produce animals, a lot of animals, uh, to a high uh, ethical uh, standard. So they're all going to have great care that's been informed. We've had experts and, and zookeepers helping to inform how we uh, how the whole system is run um but along yeah. with conservation you know as as we said if we're gonna have a view to restoring these animals uh, we've got to do it at scale you know we cannot just yeah. be restoring a couple of ponds we've got to be doing literally the whole country or wherever suitable and so yeah. that's exactly what the facility will allow um but at the same time as i said education a massive thing that that we've got to do is show people that these animals exist and and although it's great to see them in the wild it's not always possible um and so you know because of legislation for instance the great crested newt in britain is is very heavily protected you can't go and catch one um intentionally so what 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 we what we've got to do is you know as captive breeders and as conservationists is is create these these experiences with people whereby people there, therefore you know like we said previously uh, develop an emotional connection to the animal and, and therefore have a will to preserve them. Um, and yeah. then that's exactly what the facility is going to do. And it's also going to be the HQ of all of all the exciting video productions and stuff that we've, that we've got going. So it's all a bit of a hubbub at the moment. We've got all stuff on. You know, the kitchen has at the moment got a massive sign on it on there, spray painted. I've got camera equipment all over the floor and we've got an office block coming in pretty soon and it's all uh, all a bit of a mess. I've got lizards in in my brother's bedroom, uh, so it's uh, all pretty funny. But uh, but it's all it's all really exciting, and we genuinely cannot wait for for the day that we get to open it. Um, Great. And, well, uh, hopefully, uh, once times are back to exactly. normal, this, well, exactly. hopefully this year I can come and visit. <laughs> yes, definitely. No, no, we'd love to have you over. Definitely. 
Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Harvey, look, it's been great talking to you. Thank Where you, can mate. people find out uh, more about what you're doing? Um, so if you go to www.celticreptileamphibian.co.uk, uh, you can see all the stuff that we do on there. Uh, you can contact us on there. But also if you type in Celtic Reptile and Amphibian on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, uh, you can see us, and don't forget to go and check out our YouTube channel uh, and give us a subscribe on uh, YouTube, which, again, is just Celtic Reptile and Amphibian. Uh, we'd love to see you. <laughs> yeah, I can highly recommend um, YouTube. I got lost in a YouTube wormhole there um, a couple of weeks ago. I watched nearly all of your videos, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's good um, Good frog, frog and reptile nerd stuff. <laughs> Great. Well, Harvey, thanks again. Thank and you, I wish Nathan. you the best of luck with the new facility. Um, it sounds great. And as I say, as soon as we can uh, get out and get a bit more freedom, I would love to come visit. Maybe we can do um, a video or something. Brilliant. Love to. Would love that. Great. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. No worries. Thank you. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast, please give it a like and a subscribe on whatever you're listening to on. And if you would like to support the podcast, uh, the costs are covered by myself, but would appreciate any donation on the ACAST supporter link in the show description. So it's over and out for me. And again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Mm-hmm.